Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A businessman known to be a Democrat decides to run for office as a Republican. He touts his business experience and ability to spend his own money on his campaign. He gets an enthusiastic endorsement from Rudy Giuliani. He's saying that he's the man to get the economy going. It's 2001. Mike Bloomberg is running for mayor of New York, and he wins. We like Mike! We like Mike! We like Mike! With 255 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. Mike Bloomberg is shaking up the Democratic presidential primary. He's come into the race less through the traditional route of political strengths, like being a strong public speaker, good on the stump, than behind the weight of a solid gold battering ram. More than $50 billion at his disposal. And we're about to find out just how far that can take him. Hello, I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance, a podcast from The Economist about the 2020 elections and the road to power in America. I'm The Economist's US editor, and from now until election day, we'll take one theme each week and explore it in depth. Today, we'll be looking at whether the Michael Bloomberg of his advertising blitz is the same as the Michael Bloomberg who was mayor of New York. We'll be looking back into why spending billions of your own dollars on a presidential campaign is entirely within the rules, and we'll be looking at the impact Mayor Mike is having on the Democratic field. Could Mike Bloomberg spend his way to the presidency? With me, as per usual, the two regular guests here in New York, sitting opposite me for once, Charlotte Howard, The Economist New York Bureau Chief. Hi, Charlotte. Hi, John. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. It's great to have you in New York. Thank you for having me. You've met Bloomberg a bunch of times in the course of covering him when he was mayor of New York and in your role here as Bureau Chief. What's he like in person? He has the air of someone who's very accomplished. Everything that he does, it's grounded in research, data, it's not necessarily good politics. So he's someone who is confident of his ideas, but doesn't necessarily feel the need to sell them. Got it. And with us also, John Fasman, The Economist's roving Washington correspondent, who right now is never in Washington. Um, John, you're in South Carolina. How are you doing? I'm very well, John. John, South Carolina is a state you know really well because you were based in Atlanta for a long while as The Economist correspondent there, and you covered the whole of the South. Tell us a little bit about the peculiarities of South Carolina. Well, what I find interesting about the state is that it is right between North Carolina and Georgia. And North Carolina, of course, voted for President Obama in 2012 and is a really purple state, the gerrymandered districts notwithstanding. And Georgia is a state that Democrats have had their eye on for a long time. But South Carolina remains solidly conservative, except for a couple of districts around Charleston and James Clyburn seat. It's really very deep red. And you've been talking to Democratic voters there about all the primary field, including Mike Bloomberg. I have. Mike Bloomberg is not on the ballot in South Carolina this time. As you know, he has foregone the four early states. But people there are paying attention to his candidacy, and they're thinking about him and what he represents very seriously. Okay. We will dissect Mr. Bloomberg's policy record in just a moment. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the way 
his money has created the situation where there are almost two alternate universes in the Democratic primary. There's the one you might be in if you're a voter who's following the election closely, a kind of political nerd who spent Wednesday night glued to the debate, watching the other Democratic candidates rip chunks out of their new rival. But there's also a universe full of people who prefer to switch their TVs to something else and who get to know Mr. Bloomberg only in the commercial breaks. By the way, I'm the only candidate in a race who doesn't take a penny in contributions from anyone. No big donors, no special interests, nothing. Mr. Bloomberg's ad campaign is like nothing we've ever seen before. The ads are wall-to-wall, inescapable, airing everywhere from the Super Bowl to Animal Planet. A recent estimate from Kantar Media put the figure for his ad spend at over $400 million already. And if his campaign goes well, that's just the start. I'm Mike Bloomberg, and I approve this message. They're targeted at states coming up on the primary calendar, but the ambition of these ad buys reflects the fact that cost is more or less not a factor for Mr. Bloomberg. He even bought an ad or two in Iowa where he wasn't even on the ballot, presumably in the hope that people from out of state might see them. But it's not just the scale of this that matters, it's the content. First, the ads are often notably light on Mayor Mike. From the instant I took office, I moved rapidly to revive the U.S. economy. Donald Trump often features more prominently than the candidate himself does. Let Obamacare implode. Trump explodes, attacks the war heroes in the room as losers. Or they're fronted by a diverse cast of Bloomberg supporters, all explaining why they like Mike. He promotes women and he respects women. I want progress. I want hope. Liderazgo en acción. El alcalde Bloomberg y el presidente Obama lucharon like juntos para promover a woman for Mike. These ads focus on the core elements of Mr. Bloomberg's argument. His claim that he's electable and that he's the best place to beat Donald Trump. Trump is running unopposed in every state that will actually decide the general election. You choose a nominee with a proven record of winning voters on both sides of the road. Mike will He's get it done. president for all of us. All of us. All of us. That his record as mayor backs up these claims of competence. Becoming a three-term mayor who brought a city back from the ashes. As mayor Mike raised taxes on the wealthy, using that money to provide more housing, schools, and opportunities and beating the drum over and over on an issue that's been a big part of his politics and his philanthropy, gun control. And he said to me, I'm going to do everything that I can to end gun violence. And he has. It takes a lot of courage to take on the gun lobby. We've got to do something about this. And we can. Mike is our guy. The effect of all these ads cumulatively is hard to quantify. There's simply no yardstick to measure this kind of paid media saturation. But there's little doubt that it's played a major role in his ascent. But do the arguments he's making ultimately hold up to scrutiny? And is this shiny, curated version of Mike Bloomberg one that his constituents in New York would recognize? I'm Mike Bloomberg, and I approve this message. I'm Mike Bloomberg, and I approve this Soy message. Soy Mike Bloomberg. Y apruebo este mensaje. So, Charlotte, let's start with you. Watching all those ads, which, when you watch them, have a little note at the bottom saying approved by Mike Bloomberg and paid for by Mike Bloomberg, what are the claims that jump out to you? I think what you heard in those ads was something interesting in that Bloomberg, with those advertisements, is both trying to introduce himself to voters and remind voters of everything that's horrible about Trump, rather than the incompetent billionaire 
instead choose the billionaire who has run America's biggest city, who has a large philanthropy, uh, who has built an enormous business. This is the billionaire you should choose. Largely, these are introductory ads letting Americans know vaguely who Michael Bloomberg is and why he would be a better president than Trump. And how about the claims made in those adverts about what he was able to do while he was mayor? It's impossible to argue that New York remained static during his tenure. He did a whole lot. So he took control of city schools. Prior to that, they had been run by school boards, which were widely regarded as pretty dysfunctional. He supported charter schools, closed bad schools, sought to fire bad teachers, and he fought bitterly with the teachers union in New York. He really reshaped New York physically as well as economically. So he rezoned about 40% of the city. The waterfront in New York looks dramatically different now than it did before he took office, largely because of Bloomberg. Not everything that he did was universally popular. There was a backlash against Bloomberg, both from the entrenched interests who he had fought, including the teachers union, also, of course, over his controversial stop and frisk policy. So he was not a unifier necessarily of the nation's biggest city. John Charlotte brought up stop and frisk, and that was one of the things that was brought up by Mike Bloomberg's Democratic rivals in the first debate where he appeared in Nevada on Wednesday night. Talk us through the rights and wrongs of stop and frisk. Sure. So so stop and frisk refers to a policy carried out by the New York Police Department for years, uh, and it came to an end under Mayor Bloomberg's tenure when a judge ruled that the way the NYPD carried it out was unconstitutional. Now, this is a subtle point, and it's one that often gets lost. It is not unconstitutional for the police to stop and frisk someone based on reasonable suspicion, right? This is called a Terry stop after a 1968 Supreme Court ruling. What the judge found unconstitutional in New York was the way the NYPD stopped and frisked people. It was a form of racial profiling, which is, of course, unconstitutional. The judge who issued that ruling, Shira Scheindlin, published an op-ed in the New York Times on Wednesday in which she said that she didn't think Bloomberg was a racist. He was just insensitive to how stop and frisk affected non-white communities. And I think his answer in Wednesday's debate sort of bore that out. He began by saying he regretted stop and frisk, but then went on to basically defend it as one of the reasons crime dropped in New York, which really just isn't true. It was found to be ineffective and crime declined across the country during his time in office. If it fell more in New York, it was more likely because the city was getting richer and not because police were carrying out an unconstitutional stop and frisk policy. There were 115,000 stops in 2002. And by 2011, that had gone up to 685,000. And 90% of those stops were of black and Latino men. And by the end of stop and frisk, those 685,000 stops were only yielding results in terms of kind of guns confiscated at a rate of 0.15% of stops. So for somebody who is a data-driven person, whose whole thing is kind of studying the numbers and acting accordingly, it seems like it took a really long time for Michael Bloomberg to realize that this was a bad policy. There is nevertheless a lot more to his record as mayor of New York for 12 years than stop and frisk. He did an awful lot of good things, as you mentioned, Charlotte. How about his record as a philanthropist? After he left the city hall, he set up several large foundations and has been quite busily giving his money away. He's had a few initiatives that really aim to be data-driven, even if they're not particularly exciting ideas. So for health in particular, when I was covering healthcare, I was always struck by where 
Bloomberg's philanthropy chose to direct its attention. So it has done a ton of anti-tobacco work. And Bloomberg, as mayor, of course, was the person who banned smoking in restaurants and bars, really helping to set off a trend around the world to, to ban smoking in public places. And then even a less sexy subject is driving. So if you look at poor countries and how many deaths come from road fatalities, it's a really striking number. And so, you know, Telling people to fasten your seatbelts is not exactly exciting, but it actually is pretty important and passing road safety laws in developing countries is really important. The other huge area where he's spent a lot of time is thinking about climate change. So he has systematically been working to help close coal plants across the United States. He's played an instrumental role in really helping to accelerate the shift from dirty power to clean, both within the United States and elsewhere. So I think if you look at his record as a philanthropist, it's quite impressive. John, there's a kind of ideological element to his pitch, but there's also just a strong message there of, I'm the guy who can make government competent. Is that something that you think is appealing, or is that a rather boring message when up against socialism in the Democratic primary or some of the kind of excitement around a candidate like Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, well, in this in this case, as in so much of Bloomberg's candidacy, he's sort of running a, a real-time political science experiment. What he is banking on is that there will be a critical mass of Americans who are so exhausted by the storm-and-drunk presidency of Donald Trump that they're going to be happy to just let the bully pulpit sit unattended for a few years and vote for a president who promises quiet, unflashy competence. He certainly does not inspire people in the same way Bernie Sanders or Pete Buttigieg does, but maybe America's ready for boring. The problem with Wednesday's debate is that he was not just boring, he was actively unlikable. He had a series of comments that you just almost had to put your pillow over your head. They felt so painful um, when he was talking about, you know, I have some non-disclosure agreements with women, and um, I have lots of women in my organization as if he sounded like Mitt Romney talking about binders full of women. His answer on stop and frisk was very bad. So I think America is ready to vote for someone probably competent. There's a chance that they would choose that person. But if you are not just dull, but actively seem arrogant, I think that's way more problematic. At the same time, I suppose one of the premises of his campaign is that things like debates don't matter that much if you can just let the electorate get to know you through the medium of your own advertising blitz. Thank you, guys. Let's park that there for the moment. You can read more about Mike Bloomberg's record, both as a mayor and as a philanthropist, by subscribing to The Economist. Head to economist.com slash pod 2020 to receive 12 issues for $12 or £12. Now, let's delve into the history of money in American politics. How did we get to this situation where there are no limits on what a self-funding candidate can spend from his own pocket? The most famous Supreme Court case in this area is Citizens United, which led to a flood of money in politics. But Citizens United had nothing to say about self-funding candidates. To understand how we got to this moment, you have to go back a bit earlier, to the 1970s. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour. In August 1974, Richard Nixon resigned his office rather than face impeachment and conviction, leaving Americans' trust in the integrity of politics in tatters. My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. The new president, Gerald Ford, and Congress urgently needed to take action to restore faith in the political process. 
Here, the people rule. An opportunity arose in the form of completing amendments to the recent Federal Election Campaign Act, the main federal law that regulated campaign spending. Far-reaching changes to it had been working their way through Congress already, and Ford was able to sign them into law in October 1974. There was a limit on the amount of money that individuals could give to campaigns. Deborah Hellman is the David Lurton Massey Professor of Law at the University of Virginia. There was also a limit of $25,000 per kind of cycle that an individual could give. There was a part of the law that set up a public funding of campaigns at the federal level and then required that the contributions and expenditures that were made were disclosed and then set up an agency to oversee or regulate the apparatus of campaigns. However, almost as soon as these provisions were passed, they faced a fierce and bipartisan legal challenge, supported by an array of institutions ranging from the Mississippi Republican Party to the New York Civil Liberties Union. Many people felt that a law that restricted the amount of money that a person could spend on expressive activities like taking out an ad in the New York Times to express my political view was a restriction on political speech. The Supreme Court ruled on the case in 1976, named Buckley v. Vallejo. The Buckley was after James Buckley, who was the senator who brought the case, and the Vallejo was the then secretary of the Senate, who functioned in this case as a stand-in for the government. The court sided against the government. What the court said was that both giving and spending money in connection with elections are protected under the First Amendment. Limits on the amount that an individual can give to a political candidate or to a political party were constitutional, but that limits on the amount that an individual could spend in expressing his or her own views were not constitutional. The result was a mishmash of the court's rulings with the original law. Professor Tabitha Abu al-Hajj, who's a constitutional law and campaign finance expert at Drexel University in Philadelphia, told The Economist that this complexity became part of America's problem with money in politics. So often people who work in this area sort of say campaign finance is like a waterfall, like when you close off one loophole, the money finds its way through a different loophole into the electoral system. It's incredibly technical in ways that allow people to get around what seem to the public like clear barriers or or obligations. The principles in Buckley v. Vallejo have been built on ever since. Campaign finance is a hot topic of debate, And the more recent case, Citizens United, which expanded on Buckley substantially, has become the rallying cry for those who want campaign finance reform in America, which includes some of the Democrats running against Michael Bloomberg. It may even require a constitutional amendment if we really want to overturn Citizens United, which more or less established as a matter of law that uh, the ability to buy influence in politics. But even before Citizens United, there were no restrictions on the money a candidate could give to themselves. Bloomberg's been taking full advantage of the rights afforded to him, not in any recent ruling, but in Buckley v. Vallejo. John, Charlotte, before I come to you, I want to throw in a little bonus factlet about that 1976 case. One of the lead lawyers on it, arguing for the winning side, was a certain John Bolton. 
It's one of the cases that saw him become a rising star in conservative legal circles. John, I mentioned Citizens United there. That's a big part of the current debate over money and politics, a debate which has been given new life by Michael Bloomberg's self-funding candidacy. Can you explain for us a bit about what Citizens United is and why it's important? Yes, sure. So Citizens United was a case brought by a conservative activist group called Citizens United against the FEC, the Federal Election Commission. The group wanted to air and promote a film critical of Hillary Clinton just before the Democratic primaries in 2008, and the FEC said no. They ruled that the film violated a law passed in 2002 with bipartisan support that forbade companies and nonprofits and unions from broadcasting material mentioning any specific candidate within 30 days of a primary. Citizens United appealed that ruling all the way up, and in 2010, the Supreme Court ruled that that law, that 2002 law, violated the First Amendment, and it basically freed outside groups to spend freely on advertising and advocacy. And that ruling overturned a century of restrictions on political spending. It argued that the risk of corruption, which was the rationale for restricting election spending, wasn't really a risk as long as the entities didn't coordinate directly with the candidate's campaign. And what the ruling essentially did was free outside groups to spend as much as they wanted. It led to the creation of super PACs or entities formed just as vehicles for political ads, and it dramatically boosted the power and influence of of rich donors. The Brennan Center found that between 2010 and 2015, just 200 people accounted for the majority of super PAC spending. And as long as their ads don't tell people to vote for or against a specific candidate, These groups needn't disclose their donors. They can paint a candidate in whatever light they wish as long as they don't tell people who to vote for. So just to be clear, outside groups are groups that are separate from the president's campaign. So the FASMAN 2020 presidential campaign is one thing. The FASMAN super PAC can be set up totally separately from the campaign. Nobody has to know who's donated to it. And it can be a large pool of what's known as kind of dark money by people who write about this stuff. That's absolutely right. And we've seen that happening so far after Amy Klobuchar did well in New Hampshire, there was a lot of concern that her campaign did not have the money to go big in Nevada, South Carolina, Super Tuesday. And so what happened was an independent super PAC called Kitchen Table Conversations that was not part of Senator Klobuchar's presidential campaign was formed, and it is spending heavily in Nevada, South Carolina, and Super Tuesday states. I have a lot of sympathy with the Citizens United ruling. I think the laws restricting speech, as the 2002 law clearly did, are really very dangerous to future speech and expression, and that liberals who sort of wave their hands and demand an immediate reversal of Citizens United are playing with fire. On the other hand, free speech is not absolute. There are laws punishing slander and libel and direct incitement. And I think there's probably a solid argument that the sort of speech that Citizens United has allowed, which immensely magnifies the voices of a few people and allows argument without disclosure, has harmed American democracy. But whatever that views merits, the thing is there isn't bipartisan consensus in Congress to pass a law overturning Citizens United. And even if there were, I doubt that argument would find much purchase with today's conservative federal judiciary. America looks pretty certain to live under the Citizens United ruling and the spending it has allowed for, for decades to come. I think that there's something sort of interesting when you look at the polling. So in 2018, more than three quarters of Americans think that there should be some kind of limit on campaign spending. And America really is so anomalous. I mean, in Britain, parties can spend uh, $30 million in the year before an election. So it's quite remarkable, the difference in scale in spending in America versus in other countries. My experience covering politics in countries other than the US is that there are no perfect 
campaign finance laws. I mean, if you look at Brazil, which, like America, has a presidential system, two houses of Congress, elections, they're enormously expensive. There are quite restrictive official campaign laws, but money finds a way into presidential politics. And actually, successive governments in Brazil were brought down by corruption scandals that were all went back to illegal campaign finance. But even if there's no perfect campaign finance law, it seems to me that we could probably all agree that a situation where you have a large amount of money going to a candidate from donors who are anonymous is troubling. Picking up on your point about Brazil, John, I covered politics in Indonesia for several years. And there, parties sort of hold the money and the power, and they're essentially vehicles for spending. So the parties are very non-ideological. And what happens is every presidential election, they sort of audition candidates, and they pick a candidate who they think will win. And then that candidate becomes a vehicle for that party. And the party uses the connections to sort of get the candidate out there. It's the party that that, that provides the, the money and support. And so even though there's not, you don't have campaign finance spending the same way you do here, you still have that influence of money. It's just organized differently. But I do think in the U.S. that since Citizens United, there's been this kind of anything goes, throw up your hands attitude where you could see someone like Bloomberg get a bit of traction by saying, you know, I'm not beholden to dark money. Um, You know exactly who's funding my campaign. It's me. You know, I don't have a euphemistically labeled super PAC that sounds nice, but actually these interests may be, who knows, you know, bankers, oil interests, casino magnets, whatever. And so I think that Bloomberg's ascension is in some ways sort of a sign of the post-Citizens United new normal, where you're just going to have so much money in politics that the idea of someone really coming out in an explicit way and not being shy about how much money they're going to spend is sort of the new normal. Thanks, everyone. We'll be back in a moment to take stock of what this campaign finance landscape means right now in the Democratic primary. Now, John Fasman, you're talking to us from South Carolina, where you're on a reporting trip. You've been talking to key endorsers, influential figures there about all the candidates and about Mike Bloomberg, even though he's not actually on the ballot in South Carolina. And what have you found out? So what I found was an electorate that's really eager to have their voices heard and uh, South Carolina has always been a crucial Democratic primary state. Its role was explained to me very well by Brady Quirk Garvin, who's the former chair of the Charleston Democrats. And South Carolina, I think, puts a definitive spin on who both minority voters want as their nominee and also helps narrow the field usually. As Democrats, no matter where they are in the country, recognize the importance of minority voices. And you don't hear those largely in Iowa and New Hampshire. And so I think not just Super Tuesday, but also all the states that come after that look to South Carolina to say, who are we as a party going to put up from when it comes to the general election? Because minority voters don't just matter in a primary, they matter hugely in the general election in terms of turnout across the country. And John, really, since as soon as Joe Biden announced his candidacy, South Carolina was talked about as a firewall for his campaign. He's polled strongly there with African Americans. His numbers have come off recently since Mike Bloomberg entered the race. But that's, it's not clear that that's relevant, given Bloomberg's not actually on the ballot in South Carolina. Have you come away from your trip feeling that Biden is toast or feeling that he might still do well in South Carolina? I don't know if he'll win. There's certainly it, the polls suggest that, that he and Bernie Sanders and Tom Steyer are bunched together at the top. But Biden really has a depth of relationships in this state that no other candidate can match. I went to a Jill Biden event 
in the meeting room of a Baptist church in North Charleston and talked to a number of his supporters, including State Representative David Mack, a South Carolina legislator. This election is more about values and decency. And Vice President Biden, with his experience with the people that he knows, the people that knows him around the world and in the House and in the Senate, he gives us the best chance of getting things done and righting this ship. I'm Reverend Bernard Brown. I live right here in Charleston, South Carolina. And are you worried after how he performed in Iowa and New Hampshire? No, sir. Sometimes you got to fall down in order to get up. And so it's good sometimes to be at the bottom, but you're still standing on the top. As we're talking about Bloomberg, I'm curious, in the debate on Wednesday night, he was attacked for his record on race and stop and frisk was mentioned. We've already talked about that in practice. Is this something that African-American voters raise spontaneously when you talk to them? You know, the interesting thing is I didn't hear stop and frisk raised by many people. They were sort of talking about Bloomberg as a whole. But I thought it was important to get at least one person's view of Mike Bloomberg and his stop and frisk record. So I asked Clay Middleton, who was Cory Booker's senior advisor and who also advised Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign, and I thought his answer was really interesting. I'm 38 years old, and there are one or two things I wish I can take back. I believe Mike Bloomberg is 78. I'm sure there's a few things he, too, would take back in his, his life. So I would have a problem if he did not regret things he has said and things he has done as mayor. I would have a problem with that, and I'm not sure who I'm going to vote for. I am a DNC member, and he will be on the ballot when we vote in in July. If I don't vote for him, it won't be because of his position with stop and frisk. Charlotte, there's a suggestion there from Clay that, in electoral terms at least, the stop and frisk question is overblown. Do you agree with that? I think, in general, if Bloomberg had a good answer for how stop and frisk came to be and why he now thinks it was bad policy, that he could move beyond it. The challenge, as was highlighted in Wednesday's debate, is that he doesn't really have a good explanation, at least not one that he's presented yet to voters. I do think, though, just going back to the Bloomberg versus Biden question, uh, Bloomberg's whole candidacy is essentially a vote of no confidence in Biden, that Biden as a moderate won't be able to carry the day either in the Democratic primary or if he were to be the nominee, that he would be able to be successful in the general against Trump. And on Wednesday in the debate, Bloomberg had this sort of weird effect of making Biden seem like the picture of youthful vigor. (laughs) Biden was very passionate, um, was much more on point than he had been in the past. And Bloomberg, you know, he came across one of the main things is that he also has a stent like Bernie Sanders. You know, Bloomberg sort of did a service to Biden in making Biden seem quite appealing in comparison. That's a great point. Well, I was in the Bloomberg campaign headquarters earlier this week, and the meeting was off the record. But what I can say is that they, in addition to having a lot of money to spend on adverts and you know adverts which have high production values, they've got a very large field operation already. They say they have 2,400 staff at the moment. To put that in context, I think at his peak of his campaign in 2016, Donald Trump had 800 Now, that was a strange campaign because it wasn't as reliant on field operations as a typical campaign would be. Their line is that the advertising is only effective, and you can see it's effective because of the bump in the polls, I think. It's only effective because Bloomberg has such a good story to tell, both as mayor and as a philanthropist and as a person who is kind of uniquely well-placed in some senses to go up against 
Donald Trump. It's worth putting Bloomberg's numbers in context just to get a sense of the scale. In terms of advertising, as you say, it's not the only way that he's spending his money. But Bloomberg has spent more than 30 times as much as Biden has spent on advertising. That's pretty remarkable given the short amount of time that he's been in the race. Sanders is the non-billionaire who's raised the most. And he his average donation is quite small, less than $20 in January. And that's something that he can be proud of and point to as a point of contrast. The coming weeks, we'll see whether Bloomberg can really translate this huge surge in spending both on advertisements and in building out this impressive campaign staff, whether that translates into substantively winning support uh, in some of these primaries as we get going towards Super Tuesday. John Fasman, some of Mike Bloomberg's Democratic rivals are comparing him to Donald Trump, you know, saying that Democrats don't need a billionaire. The problem is the billionaire in the White House and so forth. Are those comparisons fair? I think the comparison is perfectly fair. They're both billionaires. They're both unconventional. They both had a life outside politics. It was inevitable that they came up. Now, they're very different figures in the sense that Mike Bloomberg has actually run a huge corporation and has been mayor of New York for three terms. But it was inevitable that those comparisons would be made. I do think it's worth just pointing out that on real matters of substance, the gulf between Bloomberg and Trump could not be wider. First of all, on the most superficial level, Bloomberg's fortune is uh, about 17 times that of Trump's, at least sort of 15 to 17 times is the best estimate. And then substantively, you know, Trump's philanthropy may or may not have had uh, corrupt and criminal dealings. Bloomberg's philanthropy has had a huge substantive impact on uh, global health in countries around the world. In America, his work on climate change has really done a lot to shift the picture. So it would be unfair to really put them on the same playing field. I think that that's something that Bloomberg will continue to highlight with good reason. There's real beef to that argument. Finally, your favorite bit, it's time for the quiz. This week, we've been hunting through our archive and we found an article about Mike Bloomberg from 1995 about him installing fish tanks in Bloomberg offices around the world. We wrote that he liked the sight of, quote, puffers, guppies, wrasse, blennies, and angelfish <laughs> in faux tropical surroundings. But what fish, did we point out, was the star attraction in the London office? Did he have a shark, a, huh. a little baby shark? Um, did he have a jellyfish? Uh, Fasman is closer. Piranhas is the answer. Ah, okay. We said, quote, the London offices of Bloomberg have a tank filled with piranhas who go into a feeding frenzy when they're fed to the point of biting chunks off one another. Yikes. Our main asset is our people, Mr. Bloomberg explains. It's important to keep them happy. I mean, in fairness, it's good that they go into a feeding frenzy when they're fed instead of when they're instead of at other times. I agree. I always thought that the thing that was appealing about Bloomberg's offices were the snacks. I think they were sort of the original Google in terms of having endless snacks and custom nut butters and all of that. So feeding maybe is a theme, but I would think that people prefer the uh, the actual food versus the fishes eating each other. Yeah, the piranhas also think the main attraction is the snacks, right? Snacks for humans, snacks for piranhas. They've got it all covered there. Well, thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. See you next time. See you. Good to talk to you. If you don't subscribe to The Economist, A, you're missing out, and B, there's a link to subscribe in the show notes. Go to economist.com slash pod2020. That's all from us. Please give us a rating on your podcast app if you like what you've heard. We'll have more checks and balance next week. 